hello, and welcome back to another episode of Marlin's Corner. I'm, I'm here, I'm back in my corner, and I'm glad to be with you. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to be talking about some streaming shows today. We'll be talking about Cheer. We'll be talking about The Amazing Peacemaker, and we'll be ending on a film you should check out, The Power of Dog. If you haven't seen any of these titles yet, definitely maybe pause the episode. Go ahead and check them out. And then come back and join us. Or if you want to live that life and just watch it now and listen to it now, that's fantastic too. We can accommodate that. But without further ado, let's jump right into it. Cheer, season two, it's out. Um, And if you, like me, are a trash panda for reality TV shows or things where people are like, why do you watch that? Uh, Cheer to season two is going to be for you. Uh, I definitely know that when I talked about this with my friends, i.e. my producer included, uh, people were like, why do you watch that? But guess what? And whenever I bring it up, it's because someone I told about it ended up watching it and binged the whole thing because it's garbage you just can't put down. So shout out to Eming, my producer, who very, uh, who like a day before she finished the entire season was like, oh, it looks terrible. And then she binge watched the whole thing and texted me the entire time. I can't believe I can't put this down. That's what Cheer is. Now, if you like me, if, if you like me, you followed Cheer season one, uh, you were really surprised by how a show about cheerleading could pull you in and could be so uh, toxic yet entertaining at the exact same time. Uh, Well, season two picks up where it left off. Uh, We know that after season one, uh, folks like Monica Aldama, Gabby Butler, Jerry Harris, Morgan Simonier, Lexi Brumbach, and Ladarius Marshall were the all-star standouts of Cheers season one. When you ask anyone about the show... Either of these characters is going to come up and they're going to be uh, featured uh, uh, even on the cover arc for a lot of Cheer Season 1. So coming in Season 2, uh, they're the primary focus because uh, even though the Navarro Cheer Team won, uh, these are more or less the stars of the show and doing an amazing job also uh, doing interviews with folks who were also on the team who have very pointed comments of like, hey, we're also on the team, but... I guess, you know, we're not as popular. Uh, and they even deliver, they even drive that home by showing you that all the folks I listed, uh, the entirety of the first three episodes of season two, they're doing promo deals, they're doing TikToks, they become influencers uh, for the Navarro cheer team. There's even a certain point where they are going on daytime talk shows, they're going on Ellen, they're going on, they're going on Good Morning America, they're hanging out with Oprah Winfrey on one of her tours, they're even on the red carpet doing interviews. Like, they are running the gambit and, like, really spreading the Navarro name. The the fame bug has bit them in a way that, you know, was unprecedented. And so coming into season two, like, they're on a high horse. They're like, yo, we're Navarro. Everyone knows us. We're the it girl in cheer, thanks to season one. Uh, which is why I'm glad they also brought uh, us in to get to know the folks over at Trinity Valley Community College. We got to meet Coach Johnson and Assistant Coach Franklin and got to get to know, like, who are these other individuals, especially Jada, who is the team, uh, you know, leader. Uh, who's another uh, individual who's like, hey, like our school has just as, you know, a competitive program, but people go for Navarro because, again, the Netflix special definitely helped. And also they've been like 14-time champion. So it is what it is. Uh, but I think what makes this uh, series so compelling and pulls you in right away is that we know what's coming. We know that on the one, COVID's going to hit. 
Like with a lot of these shows, like we like we saw with, with the Tiger King season two, COVID hits, it's going to hit and it's going to change how we do things. Uh, and so after they are just getting ready, going through the new choreographer, like really trying to, you know, vibe out that, yo, this is going to be our year again. We're coming off that fame, you know, COVID hits. And just around that time, we also find out that uh, Monica is going to be on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, and we also find out that, hey, uh, Jerry Harris happens to be a monster uh, who is out there soliciting minors for photos of themselves. And so this one, two, three punch uh, definitely delivered quite a blow to Navarro Cheer community in a way that fully altered the team when they came back after, you know, quarantine had been done with and they were even allowed to even work out in the same space together. We see that with Monica going to Dancing with the Stars that she has to bring in an assistant coach that rubs Ladarius the wrong way so he quits. We also see that once Monica is on Dancing with the Stars, the news about Jerry Harris drops and so now uh, the Navarro cheer is being bombarded with news questions being bombarded with negativity from the cheer community uh, and so by the time they are all officially together in a team capacity, uh, they are more more or less trying to claw back to a very, let's say, equal standing to where they started. You know, you know, they definitely still want people to remember that, hey, we're Navarro Cheer, we're a great program, but, you know, now they're also battling all these other issues going on in the background. And I will say with the Jerry Harris incident, I think the show did a great job of allowing uh, the survivors of his um, harassment to have a voice on the show to talk about it uh, and express what was going on. What was also fascinating is the fact that um, we know that a while ago with the U.S. Olympics uh, gymnastics team that there was this uh, sexual misconduct controversy happening uh, with a doctor over there, and they did a whole investigation and found out it was more than one girl, uh, many girls, and had gone unreported. And those, that same crew that happened to be working on the legal side of that also turned their lens to the world of cheer uh, and found things very similarly. Uh, folks like Jerry Harris, who were also involved in misconduct uh, allegations, and often found that a lot of these went unreported, uh, which, again, is truly tragic and sad to hear. Uh, and, yo, know, I'm hoping that they continue to push this more and find ways to make kids safe, because as they brought up on the show, uh, in, in travel cheer, you'll have folks as old as, you know, their upper 30s, and folks as young as 13 on the exact same team traveling together uh, with not a lot of supervision often at times. So there definitely is a need and a want to protect them while they're on the road. So that being said, uh, it's important to know that Jerry Harris is still awaiting uh, uh, his court date. Uh, what's truly sad is that, again, if you watch season one, you remember Jerry Harris. You can remember all the quotes he had, all the positivity he had, uh, the Matt talk. Uh, he was, you know, the spokesperson for the show. He got to speak with, he got to speak with Joe Biden for a, a whole like campaign help. Uh, he was even doing, you know, Matt talk on cameo. Uh, but what's truly uh, terrifying to know about him is that even while they were doing the investigation, doing the trial with him, uh, that entire time he had still been soliciting minors uh, for photos of himself. So uh, we hope uh, that, you know, he finds a way to find himself somewhere else away from kids uh, where justice can prevail. Um, but once we get that whole thing about Jerry in episode five, the show decides to power forward with cheerleading as it should be uh, and giving us, you know, this uh, underdog story of Trinity Valley uh, and how they 
post uh, Navarro scandal are starting to pick up some really all-star tumblers who are looking to avoid the drama that is Navarro. And so because of that, Trinity Valley College is starting to actually acquire and accumulate a very competitive team to the point that when they do go to Daytona, Daytona with uh, with the crew, uh, they go on to have an amazingly high score of 98 and end up clinching the victory uh, and topping out, uh, of course, Navarro uh, as they end uh, season two on a loss after coming in season one and in season one with a win. So it's definitely uh, an underdog story for Trinity Valley College. And it also, I think, is a cautionary tale of fame uh, in the context of this show because we see that there's just a lot of folks who are doing a lot of things to stay relevant. You know, we see that they're they're willing to sacrifice uh, each other to make it happen. We see that with Monica choosing to leave her team uh, behind so she can, you know, achieve her own thing, her own fame. Uh, that there was some feelings of negativity, uh, which led to Ladarius quitting and then doing his whole Instagram live uh, hot tea segment where he was just telling everyone all the negative things about her, uh, and it just fully fueled all this uh, other external drama that permeated into the cheer routine. And out. Uh, it, it was a wild way to end the show. Uh, but Cheer Season 2 will uh, fill your uh, garbage bucket for reality TV shows or or, or terrible docudramas. If you're looking for something to fill time, Cheer Season 2 will do just that. Alright, and now we're going to talk about a different side of streaming. We're going to go over to HBO. It's TV. Uh, we're going to go over there uh, and talk about Peacemaker. Uh, now, Peacemaker, of course, is uh, John Cena being himself a big old goober. Uh, we also know that it is a spinoff after The Suicide Squad, not to be confused with Suicide Squad. The The is very important because The The over Suicide Squad means it was the better one and it was entertaining and not at all um terrible. So with Peacemaker, I definitely was confused by him getting a spinoff, especially seeing as, you know, I knew that, hey, you know, heroes never truly die or, or villains or whatever, because there's so much spinoff material. Uh, but I was more or less confused because he was kind of the villain in uh, the Suicide Squad movie. So I definitely was interested in seeing how are you going to portray uh, the individual that killed Rick Flagg in a positive way, uh, especially enough to kind of pull in an audience. Uh, and what I'm glad to have found is that uh, James Gunn is, is at the helm uh, and he's just decided, great, rather than make this be some kind of existential crisis, uh, crisis of faith, uh, let's just make it balls to the wall absurdity. Um it is a wild film. Um, and I, I should have known it was, uh, knowing <laughs> when I saw the the opening theme to uh, the show, where uh, everyone is dancing to hair metal, uh, they're doing hip thrusts, and they're doing choreography, and everyone has the same exact dead face, but just doing this very intense hip thrusting choreography. Uh, and I was like, hey, this is going to be a ride. And sure enough, it was. Um, the show has everything you need for uh, a true absurd show on HBO. Uh, it has sex. Uh, it has gratuitous violence. And it has uh, just 
balls to the wall cursing. Just cursing for the sake of cursing. Uh, but, but honestly, this film, uh, this show is quite entertaining. And I truly want to give it to the actors on the show because they took something that could have really been a hard sell uh, and they're doing an absolute amazing job at it. Uh, Danielle Brooks is playing Latoya, uh, who who is who is the daughter of none other than Amanda Waller. Uh, and she is fantastic at playing this uh, greenhorned uh, super spy who wants to just make her mom proud. We have Jennifer Holland, who's doing an amazing job playing the Femme Patel. We have Steve Aggie as uh, re- <laughs> revamping his role uh, as the guy in the chair to help out. And we even got Robert Patrick, who's playing a who's playing the old Peacemaker uh, and also happens to be uh, a white supremacist. So remember that. (laughs) So what's important to know is that Robert Patrick played the older Peacemaker and his son is, of course, a young Peacemaker. And he just wants to make his dad proud. He wants to make his dad proud uh, however however he can do it. He just wants to make it happen. Uh, And... Again, like at certain point, like they, they mentioned that, hey, like people think you're racist, uh, mostly because he was raised by a racist. I mean, it, it, he was raised by a racist and a sexist and a misogynist. Uh, and we, so we get to see an opportunity to see this father figure that Peacemaker has, someone who watches InfoWars regularly, uh, someone who uh, told his son that, hey, you should go out there and beat up some darkies or uh, some Asians. And that was his interpretation of being a superhero, uh, was protecting uh, America, i.e. white America, from the other. Uh, And so we get a chance to truly see that. And then we kind of get some glimmering of like, oh, this junk, this this character as Peacemaker is like trying to fight this identity crisis. Um, I'm very interested in seeing how they're going to continue to talk about this or open it up to more discussion. So I'm still unsure about how I'm going to feel towards the end of this, but I'm willing to wait and see what it is they try to portray with this character. Um, I do say, I, I will say that it's really awesome to see this kind of comedy. Uh, I like that they decided to go and do something that uh, I think is truly fascinating, which is covering the butterflies, which are these uh, alien species uh, that inhabit um the face skulls of human beings and make them stronger and faster. Uh, so that's a very interesting protagonist to discover. Uh, I'm really excited to see how this like fully uh, takes place. If you do want to check it out, the first three episodes are up on HBO Max. So I can't fully say much about it other than that it's been entertaining and raunchy and wild. But I think I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do for the next five episodes because this is an eight episode show. So I am looking forward to seeing how they decide to portray the rest of this. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do, James Gunn? Tell me. I cannot wait to see uh, the rest of this nonsense that is uh, Peacemaker. So they got an, another episode coming out on the 20th, which is tomorrow. So I will definitely check that out. And their last episode is February uh, 17th. So uh, more to come uh, later. Hello, this is Lafayette. And I'm Carlos. From Nerds Talking the Podcast. That's right. Where we talk about everything from UFOs, yep. comic books, like movies, uh-huh. streaming services, yeah. conspiracy theories, oh. ghosts, mm. video games, yeah. and more. Kick-ass. All on Nerds Talking the Podcast. 
You can find us every Friday with new episodes on all digital platforms where you find your favorite podcast, Nerds Talking, the podcast. Now back to the show. And now let's go into uh, our final segment, which is our Golden Globe segment. Uh, We're going to talk about the power of dog, uh, which, yes, is uh, a movie. (laughs) Uh, When I first heard it, I was like, what the hell is this title? And is there a dog in the movie? Um, There's a uh, spoiler. There is a dog, but he's not the focal point of the movie. So I guess miss opportunity there. Uh, it comes from a Psalm in the Bible, uh, but that's pretty much uh, all, that's pretty much the only segment to the title. And honestly, the movie at some point at the very end says the, the, the title of the movie, because otherwise I do not know how they would have connected this together at all. Now in this film, uh, we have, it's honestly a really dope first things first. So this film, uh, this film will take you on a ride. I want to give you a warning right now. This film, I I thought it was going to be one thing and it was something completely different. You know, it, I, I, I knew it was like, you know, the new hotness, you know, was the Golden Globe, best drama. And I definitely feel some kind of way about these like, you know, Golden Globe and Oscar films because I'm always like, oh, they're just they're gonna be about World War II or they're gonna be uh, some Western film or some period piece that's gonna be really holy toy with some like ridiculous uh, overall earthy like overall kind of like airy vibe of like, oh, this at the end of the day, you know, the man's worst. Ma- man's worst monster is man uh nonsense i was kind of like oh okay like what is this gonna what is this film gonna take me on and how long is it gonna do it for uh so i definitely had that kind of like predisposition going into it uh and i gotta say big shout out to the crew you have benedict cumberbatch as phil burbank who is the resident asshole on the movie uh you have jesse plemons as george burbank his brother you have kirsten dunce as Rose Gordon, uh, who happens to be uh, the wife of George Burbank, and her son is being played by Cody Smith McPhee, who plays Peter Gordon. Now, these are, these are the characters that we kind of we see more in the film that have a lot to do with everything. Now, what's wild about this film is that this film has multiple multiple points where you think the film is going to take you somewhere. There's several points where, um, oh, like we're, you know, the the film starts you out with these two brothers, Phil and and George Burbank, who are, you know, out there. They're they're bringing in these cows from their walk. They're going back to their to their family abode. uh, And so we're thinking, cool, that they're just going to like be, you know, out in the nature. Cool, cool, cool. No, they go to a restaurant where they meet uh, Peter and Rose. uh, And Phil Burbank, again, is the resident asshole. So he's like really he's like really disrespectful to uh, Peter um, because, again, uh, in this film, you know, Phil Burbank is given the full identity as a man's man. He's a cowboy. He's got a gruff voice. Uh, he, he doesn't need to yell. He just needs to speak something and people move. But when he does yell, it is frightening. There are several points where he just yells at people to assert his power and his dominance over them. He also belittles people, uh, but no one really presses him because, again, he's a man's man and he's kind of intimidating. So going into the restaurant, he starts, you know, picking on Peter Gordon. 
uh, Rose's son because Peter is a very, you know, thin uh, young man. You know, he is like very pale skin. He's indoors mostly. He likes to make origami. He likes to read books. Uh, He also likes to help his mom out and like, you know, he also seems to have um, some sort of um, neurodivergency because you see that he likes to run his fingers along a comb sometimes for the feeling, also for the sound. He also has a hula hoop whenever he's feeling um, overstimulated. So there's there's a lot that's going on with Peter that Phil Burbank uh, likes to make fun of. And in doing so, he offends Rose. So his brother George decides to, you know, make amends and that's honestly how their relationship starts because he sees you know so much love and beauty in her and that attracts him to him and so he decides to be uh, a servant leader uh, or a servant to kind of help support her in a restaurant uh one night when you know peter doesn't want to be inside with the people anymore uh we of course you know know that philip burbank doesn't like rose at all he doesn't like her because she's a widow uh he doesn't like her because she's taking his brother from him all the above he just doesn't like her for for reasons uh so you can imagine his feeling when his brother george decides that he's going to marry this woman uh and start a family with her uh which you, as you can picture is he's pretty upset he's pretty angry about it what sucks is that you know for the most part, Rose is left with Phil uh, a lot by herself, and she doesn't like it. You know, Phil makes sure to uh, embarrass her. He makes sure to harass her at any given point, to the point where he drives her to becoming an alcoholic. Uh, mind you, it's important to know that Rose's um, late husband, you know, died of alcoholism, uh, and now she's being steered in that direction. Uh, and her son, Peter, is witnessing this. And is, you know, the victim of Phil's, you know, rudeness and his anger. Uh, And at a certain point, though, we see this shift. We see Phil Burbank begin uh, to have these nice, kind moments with Peter. And we're very confused at first because we know that Phil made sure to say that this 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 boy is a pansy, you know. He's 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 too feminine, uh, and we start seeing these other hidden sides of Phil. We see that when Phil is alone, uh, he has these sensitive moments of wanting to like you know bathe in the river by himself, cover himself in mud, and like at a certain point he begins to. Uh, we hear often about this individual named Bronco who at first we imagine is like, oh, cool. He's like some man's man. He's like, oh, he's like that guy. Everyone thinks he's a cool dude. But then we see that Phil seems to have some other connotation or some other connection to Bronco when he's alone. We see that there is a handkerchief that Phil pulls out of his pants, uh, where his penis is, uh, and it has uh, Bronco's initials on it. And he rubs it across his body and like just seems to have a real intimate moment with this with this uh, handkerchief. Uh, we see that later Peter discovers in the woods, very close to where Phil is naked swimming, uh, a box full of nudie magazines. But in the magazine, it's only naked men. And so we can see right away that Phil happens to be uh, gay, uh, which is wild because the film does a great job of showing us uh, as, as him being this extra manly man. But we see that he has this, uh, this side of him that he's hidden from others, except for, of course, uh, Bronco, who we never meet because he has passed away at this point in time. And so after Peter discovers this box of nudie magazines that happens to be, you know, happens to run into Phil, 
Phil starts developing this um, mentor-mentee quotes relationship with Peter to where he wants to teach Peter how to ride a horse. He wants to teach him how to be a man, you know? Uh, but we also see that there's like some underlying uh some underlying attraction and reason there. And of course, Peter's mom, Rose, is freaking out because she's like, no, this man is terrible. He's he's rude. He's a nightmare. Uh, but Peter keeps going along with it. Peter keeps going out with them. At some point, they're, you know, out there laying down stakes and uh, Phil cuts his hand and like Peter, you know, gives him first aid and touches him. And you're kind of like, oh, is this like, what's, what, what's about to go down here? Is this about to get intimate? What's happening? What are we going to do? And that's where I was getting, great, this is cool. I'm getting Brokeback Mountain vibes. What's going to happen here? Um, and I thought that that's what we're going to see. And this film definitely like plays to that for a very long time to where we see Phil is a lot more um, sensitive around Peter. He's a lot more uh, kind to him and specifically just to him. And of course, Rose is still, you know, battling alcoholism and Peter is seeing that. And Peter, of course, is, he knows the reason why his mother is an alcoholic is because she wants to avoid at all the feeling of shame or inadequacy she feels because Phil is relentless in his critiquing of who she is. We, of course, get to a certain scene where we see that Phil has uh, pretty much, uh, castrated all these male bulls and he's like laid out hide everywhere like he's done a full days of man's work uh and he's has this precedent or this uh, or this behavior where he'll he'll scan all these hides and that he won't sell any of them because it's just his flex of like i did all this and no one's gonna sell them because no one dares upset me and so at some point, because Phil keeps taking Peter out on these trips, Rose decides that she's going to she's she's gonna kick the hornet's nest. She's she's gonna kick the hornet's nest and she decides to sell the hide. Uh, and we know that as soon as Phil gets back, it's gonna be on site. And so Phil gets back, live it off the top of his dome. He wants to see this woman. He wants to talk to her right away. He wants to get this done. She's 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 an alcoholic. She's a nightmare. Like he's cursing her up a storm. And his brother George um, pretty much decides, you know what? Now's the time I'm going to stand up to you and says, she's, yeah, she's been drinking, but she's also sick. I'm not going to have you speak to her that way. She's my wife. You'll be fine. And you were only going to burn the hides anyway. You never sell them. You're overreacting. At that point, he pieces out. And Phil is beside himself. Like, he's so used to having been in control to lose control. He cannot accept that he cannot believe it. And that's when Peter gives us a very interesting delivery. He says, oh, I actually have hide for you. Now, prior to this point, Phil promised to Peter that he was going to make him a rope and that, you know, it was going to be his rope. And this whole thing about the rope definitely is this very intimate moment between the two of them, because whenever he's working on the rope, he's always with Peter and he's always like giving him this like very sexy look. This, 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 he's, 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 he's always giving him the little goo goo sexy eye. And it's like, all right, are, are y'all going to kiss? What's going to happen here? We don't know. But when Peter tells him that he has Hyde, um, Phil 
fully embraces him, like fully steps into his personal space, allows someone in his own personal space uh, and just like gives him a full body hug that kind of lingers as they, as they separate a bit too. And then we, of course, fast forward to that night where they're literally, it's the middle of the night, you know, Rose sees Phil and Peter go into the barn together closes the door all they have is that sensual candlelight and i'm thinking all right let me get ready for it because they're about to do some real some real cowboy in this in this in this bar real quick uh and instead what we get is this very interesting scene we get the scene where phil is you know he's trying to wrap up the rope he's you know fully braiding it with the hide he's putting his hand in this bucket you know in between to kind of clean the hide and get it ready uh and the camera like really lingers on this cut that uh peter happened to dress you know earlier in the film you know it's still pretty gross looking and the cut has opened uh and his blood is like mixing in the water but we you know but he, he keeps you know braiding the rope uh this whole time peter is asking questions that I think are very useful for the audience. He's fully asking a lot about Bronco and Bronco's connection to Phil. And we find out that Phil got to hang out and kick it with Bronco when Phil was Peter's age. And Bronco taught Phil what it was like to be a man or what it was like to be a cowboy. And of course, Peter, Peter at this point, I think we are aware, knows, you know, that, hey, like, Phil likes men and Phil was in a company of Bronco in a very intimate sense. And at a certain point when Phil is given this story of how like, you know, Bronco and him, you know, their clothes got wet and they needed to stay warm. They, you know, they laid together, you know, Phil, you know, Peter's like, so you laid together naked, you know, and Phil kind of acknowledges like, yeah, we did. And you're kind of like, cool. So y'all did something like this is happening. And, once Phil answers that question, this, this is like very understanding look between Phil and Peter. And I thought in that moment, we were going to see some stuff go down sexually. Uh, but we don't. It like goes to black, transitions. It's now morning. Uh, and everyone's kind of up and about doing their own work, uh, except for Phil. And everyone's wondering, yeah, yo, where's Phil? My thought, I'm thinking, yo, is Phil going to be in the barn with Peter? Are they going to be caught in the hay together? Uh but no, we see that Peter is in his room kind of just hanging out. And we, when George just finds his brother Phil, Phil is as sick as a dog. He is scrunched up in the bed, looks uncomfortable, looks pale. Uh, and, you know, George tells, his brother, George, tells his, George tells his brother, yo, let's go to the doctor, you know? And when we do see Phil come downstairs to go to the doctor, Phil is wearing a full suit and tie. Um, and at first I was confused. I was like, why is he getting dressed up to go see the doctor? Is it like a formal thing in the old timey West to go get all dolled up to go see a doctor? Like, I don't know. Uh, but we do see that in Phil's hand, he's holding that rope that he made for Peter. And he, at first doesn't want to leave until he finds Peter to give him the rope. But he also is like really looking sick. He can't stay on his feet too long. He's like a really like knobby knee. Like he's really looking bad. Uh, and so they, at some point they tell, you, Listen, they tell him, yo, we'll give the rope to Peter. Like we just got to go. Like it's all good. So they get him in the car and they drive off. And then, the, and then the, the movie does another fade to black. I'm like, yo, what's happening? Like, why do we keep fading to black? When we come back from the fade to black, Phil is dead in the coffin. Like, full dead in the coffin. They're reading him his last rites. I was so confused. I'm like, yo, like, what happened? Like, did he do, like, 
did he stay up too late and he got sick or or did like or what happened? You know, he's just dead. You know, and so we cut like you know right from like the like him in the coffin to his funeral. Uh, they're having to add some you know it's like an after they're kind of like in this room talking together, uh, and a doctor comes up to Jordan and is like, "Hey, so I'm really confused at your brother's." You know, death. It was it was such confusing circumstances. George asks why. The doctor tells him, "Yeah, it looks like he died from anthrax." And which why that earlier in the film we learned that you know anthrax is something that you know that animals can get, uh, and that when I, you know, and that at a certain point in the film where like one of the cows has anthrax, and they make sure to get rid of that animal so it doesn't you know make the other animal sick. Uh, and George even goes on to say like. That's so weird because Phil knows to avoid sick animals. That's so unlike him. And then that's when, as a viewer, you connect all the dots. In the film, we know that Peter, Peter is, you know, he's a very interesting young man, but he also wants to be a doctor. Uh, He's sent to school when he's not on the farm and he's learning how to be a doctor. When he does come back to the farm, our first instance of him being very, in his own way, cruel, is he captures a rabbit, and he at first, you know, presents the rabbit to his mom as a gift, and then in the next scene, he dissects the rabbit. You know, he's in his room, he pulls it apart, he's going through it, he's, he's like taking notes about the organs and everything. And we kind of see this very intense side of him in his work, which is doing weird animal things. Uh, And then as he gets to, you know, realize realize that his mom is having a harder and harder time with Phil, we see that he asks Phil at some point uh, if, you know, what happens to, you know, the sick animals that are on the farm? Like, you know, do they often come back with you? And he says, no, sometimes we lose them up in the mountains, you know, and they go up there. We, you know, we just, you know, we get rid of them. And the following scene, we see Peter by himself in a very quick scene, wanders up with his horse to this mountain where we see him at first cutting into a cow and we don't necessarily know what he does. All we see is that he just takes out his knife and just starts cutting. And then the scene cuts. When he brings up that he has hide, that's when we're like, oh, he has that hide from that cow that was sick. And then we realize that in the scene where Phil is working on that hide to make sure a rope, he's dipping his hand with an open wound in a bucket with the hide as the hide is just kind of like sitting in there and the anthrax from that animal is seeping into the cut. Now we know this is done on purpose because of the fact that we go back to the house where uh, you know Peter has not attended the funeral and Peter with surgical gloves is holding the rope that was covered in anthrax and he puts the rope underneath his bed in a very like creepy thriller type way and then he reads a passage from the Bible about the power of dog and that's when we realize that the whole time the whole time Peter had been planning to kill Phil and the longest of the longest cons Peter had been working to get closer to Phil in an attempt to murder him somehow and when he found his end he took it now we don't know if he would have swapped out the hide at some point to make Phil use the dirty hide or what but we just know that he had, he had a plan. It involved 
anthrax. And as someone who has, you know, a background in, in medical science, he was he would have been the one person to know how to effectively poison this man. Uh, and this film took me for a loop. I fully thought we were going to see this redemptive arc where Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil Burbank was going to fall in love with Peter Gordon and renounce his negative ways and promise to be a better man. Uh, but instead we get a film where someone's like, yo, that's my mama and I protect her and I got you. And it, it honestly, it makes the opening scene so much more impactful because when the film opens, we hear Peter Gordon uh, pretty much discuss, you know, he, we, we don't see him. We just hear his voice discussing wanting to protect. Uh, and so we see that how far he will go to protect his mom. And that farness is I will murder someone to keep her safe. Now that's definitely giving me like psycho vibes, uh, you know, from the movie, like how, you know, infected with your mom are you? Like, I don't know, but they, this Peter Gordon at the end of the film definitely makes you feel really fearful for him. And I, I watched it a second time and watching it a second time, you see all the signs that are there and you connect them so much more faster. And it just makes all those moments of like, uh, faux intimacy just seems so much more manipulative. Uh, and it's just so fascinating to watch it go down. And honestly, I can see why this film won best drama because it was just so enthralling. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't look away. I was just so impressed by the film, so impressed by what it presented that uh, I have been talking about it for a minute now. It has the wildest last 20 minutes of a film I've ever been a part of. So if you have time and you want to go check it out and you have checked it out, yo, tell me all about it and uh, when we post this because it's just fascinating. It's just fascinating. Uh, but with that being said, we'll catch you next time in the corner on Marlon's Corner. Bye. This episode of Marlin's Corner was produced in Richmond, California. 